0: Welcome back to Unfamed Christianity, where we help Christians find culturally aware, biblically nuanced, and Jesus embodying responses to current day issues. In our last episode, we started a series diving into how we can find a deep assurance of our purpose and just kind of a, a confidence, not, not necessarily like looking for our passions, but just like this settledness of why we exist and a grid to help us make decisions and so forth. We also combine that with with the struggle that people feel they want more in their faith, they want more authenticity with God, and yet they they feel it lacking, they look around them and it feels monotonous, or or maybe they're reading scripture and it's just like what they see in in the church around them is not lining up and they want more, they want to live out their faith more effectively. And so the title of of the last episode was Connect With God and Your Purpose Through His Story. And so we're diving into the story of god i made the statement that that part of why we struggle to have this flowing relationship with god where we just we know what our purpose is sometimes we have highs and everything is going well and other times we have lows and we know what our purpose is even when we're struggling through decision-making processes even when there's trials in life that are difficult and we don't enjoy going through them we have a deep settled assuredness what our purpose is we struggle to feel that or a connection with God sometimes we we're reading scripture and, and we feel like we're not getting anything out of it or, or maybe life is in a busy season and we don't have time to spend with God to have a relationship that just flows even through the ups and the downs and the dry and the wet times we struggle to have that kind of relationship because we engage the medium the Bible in a way that it was never intended to be engaged. Most of us have grown up with this understanding that the, the way you engage God is through the Bible, and yet we're using the Bible in a way it wasn't intended to be used. And I told the, the illustration of the cookbook trying to go shopping with a cookbook as though the cookbook was the shopping list and how that can be a frustrating experience. In a similar way, we tend to engage scripture as though it's a reference book. And there's a few ways in which we do that. We might use it as a theological dictionary where we're looking for answers about God and about man and about life in this world. And so when, as we're going along or as we're having conversations with people, we're like, so how old is the earth? You know, or, you know, maybe what is the purpose of man? You know, we have these questions and we go to scripture to find answers for that. That's like a theological dictionary. What is the nature of hell what is the purpose of the church what rules should we have in church like that approach is using the bible as a theological dictionary it's a sort of reference book another approach might be moral handbook so should christians vote should a christian drink alcohol should a christian work at a restaurant that serves alcohol should christians wear certain clothes What areas of society should Christians serve? You know, all those questions, or or more specifically, maybe like, what do we do about abortion? Or what do we do about certain bills that are in place that are going to affect the way we interact with society? should Christians use vaccines? Like all of these things are ethical questions that we have and when we have this ethical question and we engage scripture solely through, I need an answer to this ethical question, it's like using it as a moral handbook, a sort of reference book. Another way we might use scripture as a reference book is by using it as a devotional grab bag. So, oh, I got to teach Sunday school this weekend at church. And so I better study scripture so that I have something to present, you know, or something that is is something I wrestle with a lot is I do a lot of teaching, Bible teaching. And is my only engagement with scripture through preparing for teaching lessons? Or more specifically, do I Do I think scripture should be this sort of inspirational genie? I wake up and I've got to get something out of scripture so that I feel better in the morning. Is that the primary way in which I'm engaging scripture? All three of these, the theological dictionary, the moral handbook, and the devotional grab bag are ways that we approach scripture as though it's a reference book. But the Bible is a story. It's a story about God. The Bible is the story of God and his creation. It's the story of man and the reason God put man in his creation. This story reveals what God is doing through man and creation. So if you if you missed the last episode, I strongly recommend that you go back and listen to that one. But in this episode, we're going to dive into reading the Bible as story. We're just going to cuz this may be a new concept to you. So how, What do you mean reading the Bible? Are you saying that the Bible doesn't give us answers to theological questions? Are you saying that it doesn't help us know what to do in moral situations, you know, to deal with ethical struggles? Are you suggesting the Bible doesn't provide inspiration for us? Absolutely not. Yes, the Bible does give answers to theological questions. Yes, the Bible does provide questions. Guidance for moral issues. Yes, the Bible wants to connect us with God Almighty. But the way it does that is not through a reference book mentality. Like, oh, here's my question. Or, ooh, here's the issue. Or, ooh, I'm dry. I need inspiration. So I go to the Bible, sort of like a vending machine. It doesn't do it through that way. It does it through story. And so what do we mean by that? That's what we're going to get into in this lesson. Now, I just want to be clear up front. I am about to open enrollment for my course, Finding My Place in God's Story. This is kind of the flagship course for me personally. It's it's a passion project. It's, it's also, if you've read my book, Live Free, it, the Live Free kind of ends in this section of like, discovering purpose, like free, true freedom, sexual freedom as man or woman is discovering like why you exist and how you fit into what God is doing in the world. And so this really is probably everything that I write, everything that I teach, everything that I say even a few years ago when i dove into into issues of race and and more recently as i sort through issues of sexuality and gender like all of that has to do with fleshing out how we live in god's story today and so i'm going to be opening enrollment for that in in a little bit probably within the next week you'll if if you stay tuned you'll find out about that but as as a part of prepping for that, I I wanted to just share some teaching with you from the course. And so in this episode specifically, I'm going to be sharing uh, some blurbs from an interview that I did with one of my professors, also some blurbs from specific lessons that you will get in the course, Finding My Place in God's Story. And so we're just going to kind of walk through, it's going to be a deep dive I'm, I'm recording this, I'm aiming for like a half hour to 40 minutes, and, and I have no clue how long it's going to go. I'm, I might have to have Jaren edit some things down for me here. But this is, I can't tell you how much of a, a burden, like sometimes it burdens me, sometimes it's just passionate. Like this excites me to the more I see God's story, the more I discover God's story and I long for other people to see their place in God's story. I would say the single most significant piece of helping me process times of grief in life, and I I specifically point back to the loss of my mom just a few days before our wedding. What has helped me make sense of all of that is seeing God's story at a whole new level before. before. before that experience, I had very much a, a reference book mentality of engaging scripture. And it's been since that experience that I've, I've dove into the story of God. But even more specifically, I would say it started by just my comfort came in knowing the gist of the story. Like knowing where it's going to go. And like there are a lot of explanations for life from different religions, different worldviews, different perspectives. And sure, maybe there's a bias that I have because I grew up in a Christian home, but literally the most comforting and hopeful and beautiful answer is found in the story of Jesus. That's why I'm a Christian. And so I think that's why this is the single most passionate thing. It's like, there's, there's a lot of things that don't necessarily make sense And I want you to understand, first of all, even today, I still find myself slipping and defaulting into a reference book mentality. So so just because you discover this, the Bible has a story, doesn't mean you're just gonna automatically just live in the story of God. But the more we come back to that, when we find ourselves slipping into a reference book mentality, come back to the story of God, what is true? What is God communicating through this story? That gives us the grounded guidance, the confidence to to help us course correct, to bring us back through those dark, rough times, through the monotonous and just dry blah times. Like I'm not even thinking about how I'm going through life or whatever. Also, I still face a lot of situations in life that I don't have the answers for. I still face decisions that I waffle back and forth because I'm not sure which way is right or wrong. And so there there are some very practical elements of life that understanding God's story doesn't fully answer for us. And I think that's intentional. But if you're here, you're struggling with something depression, darkness, you have that low time and you're just wanting hope and you're 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 wanting to make sense of things in the sense of like, oh, I see how this all fits together, even though I'm still dealing with the emotions. If you're looking for a rod to guide you through the wilderness, you still gotta go through the wilderness, but at least now you have a rod to lean on. If you're looking for a raft to cling to in the rapid of life, and you still gotta sail through the rapid, But at least now you have a raft to cling to. If you're looking for a soft, gentle place to lay your head at night after long, hard days of work, you still got to work hard and put in that long effort in the journey of life and in your faith But to have that soft, gentle place to lay your head. That's what this series, that's what these few episodes here are intended to do it's what it has done for me it's why i want to share it with you so what what is it look like? What do we mean by the Bible is story? It's not a reference book. It's story. Well, very simply, the Bible, as we know of, I have this problem. (laughs) I'm down in my office. My Bible, my hard copy Bible is up in my bedroom. And then when I'm down in my office, sometimes I'll bring that down. But I often use digital version to when I'm studying and writing and so forth. And so I don't have a Bible to hold up for you here. But the, the 66 books that we know of as the Bible. First of all, like sometimes I, th- I think we, when we hear God's word, like, oh, we're supposed to obey God's word. Sometimes we equate that with the Bible. And I think that's a mistake. Actually, I'm quite certain that's a mistake. First of all, very rarely in scripture itself, when it uses the word the, the phrase God's word or word of God, very rarely is that referring to the written books that we have. In fact, if you're reading it in scripture, the written collection of books that we have would not have existed at the time. Maybe the Torah, I mean the the Old Testament canon, that would have been a as scrolls, but they may have had that all collected together where you could go and read that. But the word of God throughout scripture, we see it being used as a verbal declares the Lord. This is the word. Obviously with the prophets, we see that a lot. We see the word of God incarnated in Jesus Christ. So when referencing, particularly when you think of in the book of John and in in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, like the Word is very much interconnected with Jesus himself. The Word becomes flesh. Well, that kind of gets us to something. What is the Word? And the Word is a message. The Word is a message. So that message is in the Bible, yes. But the Bible is not the word of God. The word of God existed before the Bible existed. And the reason this is important is because the Bible has incredible intentionality to its structure, to the way the books are organized, even within the books, to how they're written. There's there's a particular thrust, a particular story being communicated through the construct of the Bible. The Bible has editors, the Bible has the scribes Put, not only did they edit the Bible and as they're, as they're writing down what Moses is declaring to them or as they're copying manuscripts later throughout life, sometimes they, they make editorial notes and, and they kind of help readers understand how to read this because these scrolls, these written pieces are, are going not just years down the road but they're they're being passed on generation to generation and so just like if you found a letter from your grandpa your great great grandpa in the attic of your grandpa's house you're not necessarily going to know everything like what is he talking about you know there's there's going to be some references maybe some names that you recognize like oh i know who that was or Oh, they're talking about when grandpa was born, you know. But they might reference places or there may be an insinuation that's like, I wonder what that refers to. At the time, they probably didn't think anything of it. Well, let's say your grandma found this letter many years ago, and they were reading through it to her kids, and They were asking questions, what is is this referring to? She may have explained like, oh, this has to do with that or this has to do with that. And let's pretend, I don't know of any grandmas who do this to letters, but let's pretend that she jotted that in, stuck it back in the box and left it for her grandkids to discover down the road. And they're opening the box and then they're reading this. This is great, great grandpa has written a letter. Grandma resurrected it, made some editorial notes, and now we're reading it many generations later. That the Bible has that component to it. The the letters that make up the text have that component to it. And so I mean that's just one that we're just kind of skimming across the surface. That's an example of how there is incredible intentional human intentionality to the construct of the message of the Bible but the intention is that it communicates the word of God, the message of God. The the Bible tells a story. There, There was a reason certain books were included in the canon. There's a reason certain books were excluded from the canon because it did not participate in communicating the message of the Bible that is fully culminated and manifested in Jesus Christ. And so that's that's part of what we mean by the Bible is story. It's expertly crafted to tell a cohesive message from beginning to end. Just like we wouldn't open the Pilgrim's Progress to any random chapter and just like start there. You know, you open the Pilgrim's Progress, chapter 11. I'm going to dive into chapter 11. Like that, we start stories at the beginning, if we want to understand it at least. Now, somebody might skim through a story. They might start at the very end. I've heard of people like this. I... I've never been one. If I read the end of the book, then it's like, what's the point of reading the rest of the book? But some people start at the end and then it's like, if this is interesting, they go back and read beginning to end. Typically, if we want to grasp a story, we're going to go to the beginning. In the same way, the Bible is designed that for us to understand it, we're going to go to the beginning. And this is just a slight little caveat, but some of us are incredibly infatuated with revelation and end times prophecy. And we've spent more time in end times prophecy than we have in the Torah. We've spent more time in end times prophecy than we have immersing ourselves over and over again in the Old Testament stories, in and, and the Old Testament as a whole. And that that's part of how we can end up creating some kind of fantastical ideas of what revelation means. If we want to understand revelation, if we want to understand end times prophecy, we've got to know very well all the parts that come before it because it is a conclusion to an overarching story. Does that make sense? So it's meant to be read from beginning to end. It's a unified story. It all culminates in and points to Jesus, even the Old Testament. Now, if you're like me, you grew up in an Anabaptist church, and Anabaptist theology is heavy on Jesus, and we focus on Jesus. The downside of that is that we we may not have seen as clearly. Now I've spoken with some Anabaptists who received good training about the Old Testament, good teaching about the Old Testament, even in their growing up life. So I'm I'm not going to say this as a declarative statement, but I do think there tends to be a trend that we sort of neglect the Old Testament. There are some other church denominations that might be totally infatuated with the Old Testament and neglect the teachings of Jesus, but all of it, Old Testament, the Gospels, new testament letters revelation all of it points to and culminates in jesus because jesus is the incarnated message or word of god it's a story the bible is a story about how god appoints humanity as his partners to oversee the amazing creation how humans ruined that partnership and how god is restoring us and our world through jesus christ it's not a surprise that many of us miss the larger story, because there's a lot going on. Just like in, if you think of Pilgrim's Progress, you have the, you have the main character, the protagonist, Christian, who has this yearning desire for more, and he sets out on this journey to make it to the celestial city, and there there are many difficulties that he has to overcome. One of the biggest, at least for the first section of the story, is this huge and massive burden that he's carrying and weighing on him. What is that burden, right? Like the whole story of Pilgrim's Progress is in a... Um, oh, it's slipping my mind. A, a metaphor, and analogy of the Christian life, right? So the main character is Christian, interestingly enough. But Christians have this burden well that that not all christians have this gigantic pack on the back of their bodies right they're not carrying that around in life but they're burdened we as humans are burdened down with baggage that's something we read about in scripture, interestingly enough, I'm using the Pilgrim's Progress just as a as a way of demonstrating the pieces of story, but it's also a story that kind of mirrors the, the biblical story in many ways. Because we read about the weight and the baggage that we take on, whether it's sin. We even have in Paul's writings this notion that there can be good things that actually work for us personally as baggage. And so there, there's this continual struggle that that Someone might face. That's what that burden represents. Well, in a very similar way, the Bible has a protagonist. The Bible has obstacles that have to be overcome. It has these pieces that are specific within the story that are actually working. Yes, it's a specific, like that actually is a burden. Christian needs to lose the burden in order to make it up through over the mountain and into the celestial city. But that burden also represents something more that is happening in Christian's life. And in the same way, there are specific pieces throughout the Bible that are representing deeper things for us to learn from and to grow from. In the Pilgrim's Progress, there are many antagonists that come across Christian's path. Some are aggressive and fighting and warring against them. Others are very, they look like they're headed to the same place, right? Like, in, and they're going to take shortcuts or they're going to, hey, you, we, can, we can head to the celestial city and live our best life and be plush and all this. And, and we see through this story how that distracts from what Christian is supposed to do and the the calling and purpose that he has and sometimes he stumbles with them and he gets begins to drown in the marsh or gets locked up in in the in the town (laughs) i should have rehearsed my story of pilgrim's progress i'm trying to all i can think of is celestial city right now but the town where they're having the the big parade and the party and everything and they get distracted by all the the fun events that are happening and they end up In jail, I think, for a while. In the same way, the Bible has different movie pieces, different movie parts to the story, main plot, and then a bunch of subplots that reinforce the main plot that's being told, sometimes through positive reinforcement, other times through a negative. Like, it reinforced the truth of the main point because of this negative plot that took place. So, just like we read any other book that is clearly story, we ought to read the Bible as story. There's a lot going on. Once you see every book has a careful literary design, you'll be able to see how they all fit into the overall storyline. So a, a great example to this is the book of Judges. How many of you know what Judges is about? Maybe I should ask you, What do you, when I say Judges, what do you think about? What are some, I'm guessing that most of you, bringing up the book of Judges, most of you, if you thought of anything, you might be like, wait, okay, what is Judges? But most of us think of particular Bible stories it's where we get Gideon it's where we get that Jephthah guy and and whatever happened with his daughter it's where we get Samson we know these stories that make great Sunday school lessons great vacation Bible school events and themes and stories but if I asked you what is the book of Judges about like what are each of those stories doing and communicating could you tell me could you answer that what is a common theme that you hear throughout Judges one is that Israel does what is right in their own eyes, right? So there's a there's a theme, it's repeated throughout the book of Judges. Another piece is that all of these all of these negative judges, because that's we see that happening. Here's judges, they're supposed to be appointed leaders of God, but they end up not doing very well, actually. So Gideon saves Israel on one hand, but then he, he goes and he goes farther. He takes vengeance into his own hands, which then leads to a future problem that Israel faces. Well, then a new judge rises up, kind of does what God says, but then takes some things into his own hands. There's this cycle throughout the book of Judges. So on one hand, these are good men. On the other hand, they're not good men. <laughs> like They're actually causing problems. There's a lesson in there for us Part of it is that even though we may be filling and living into God's calling for our lives, we still have the full capacity of taking things into our own hands and perverting what God wants to do. But ultimately, Judges serves. It's a bunch of captivating little stories that serve as a way of warming people up to the idea that nothing good comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And something good comes from the tribe of Judah. You particularly see that in chapters 17 through 21 of Judges, that kind of the epilogue that ties together the whole thing. So this is setting us up in the whole overarching story because it is through David the Messiah is going to come. Think of Chronicles. The book of Chronicles gives a drastically different impression of some of Israel's kings than the book of Kings. Perhaps the the most obvious is King Manasseh in the book of Chronicles is actually framed as a good king. In Kings, he's listed as like one of the worst, perhaps the worst of all of Israel's kings. Well, Chronicles serves to communicate a totally different message than the book of Kings. So in the Hebrew Bible, it's called the Tanakh. Is made up of three distinct sections. So the Torah, which is the books of law, the book of instructions. Then the Nevi'im, which is the, the books of prophecy. And then the Ketuvim, which is the writings. And so the way these serve is you have the Torah, the law, God's instruction. And then prophecy, ancient Hebrew prophecy is all about how faithful are God's people to the law that was given. And then the writings are poetry, stories, particular, well, in Chronicles is a part of writings. So it's framing things to reflect on how God's people interact in, particularly in exile, and are they faithful? How do they flesh out living faithful to the Torah in foreign lands or in nations that do not honor Yahweh as God? And Chronicles, actually, the way the Hebrew canon is organized, Chronicles is the very end of it. So in the English canon, it's the it's Malachi, Malachi, I believe, that ends the Old Testament, and Chronicles comes right after Kings. And so we read Kings, then we read Chronicles, and we're kind of bored. And it's like, you know, it feels like same old, same old. What's really interesting is you notice, if you pay attention, like, now that you know this, go read those four books, it's split up into... Each one is split up into two. You have 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Go read those, you'll notice there's difference. Point out the difference between Kings and Chronicles. However, Chronicles came alive to me when I read it according to the Hebrew canon. And I read, you have the Torah, then you have all the books of prophecy, which Kings is a book of prophecy because it's reflecting on how faithful are the kings to the Torah, Manasseh was not faithful. Chronicles is communicating a different message it's communicating, it's the very end of the Hebrew canon, the very end of the Old Testament, before we get to Jesus. And so what Chronicles is communicating is how even the godliest king can have a moment of self-centered unfaithfulness to God, and that king will reap death. Even the most wicked king can have a moment of repentance and turning to God, and that king will reap life. And I think we all know that verse, the Spirit of God searches to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for a man whose eyes are fixed on him, whom he can show himself strong through. That's kind of a paraphrase <laughs> of the verse, but that's that's the thrust of Chronicles. Regardless of how good or bad you are, you take your eyes off of God, you will fall into death. You fix your eyes onto God, no matter how wicked or evil you are, you will experience life. And that is the last and final message before going into the story of Jesus. And so these are examples of how the Bible is story. They're important and repeated themes that weave through the entire biblical story that help us make sense of the bigger narrative. Along the way, we find strange words we don't use in normal language when we take the time to understand these strange words we can discover profound ideas that contribute to the overall story and perhaps a good word this is just kind of i'm randomly picking the word righteousness well how many of you ever talk about like that's not righteous don't do that well righteousness is a rich vibrant word that actually in our english language we cannot capture it very well because it means both this the sense of morality, and the sense of justice. And so we are living rightly, rightly reflecting God's design. That's righteousness. It does take work to know how to read the Bible, how to read the different types of literature in the Bible, because there's poetry, there's narrative, there's apocalyptic literature, there's prophecy, there's writing, letters that are New Testament letters are interesting because it's like listening to one side of a phone conversation, right? The the New Testament author is responding to specific issues or questions that churches are facing. And so I've actually heard it said that the, the story of the Bible is Genesis through Acts. And then the New Testament letters after Acts are like appendices of that story. So you get the main message, Genesis through Acts. And then what does that look like in specific situations? Well, then that's the New Testament letters. Obviously, the Bible never says that. It's not actually even organized like, oh, these are appendices. But it is sort of a helpful way to think about interacting with the letters, keeping our main focus fixed on that Genesis through Acts portion. And then the letters are really practical wrestling through of what does this look like to live faithfully in the land, in the world that we have today. The Bible is a book that is meant to be studied for life. It's rich with details once you learn to see them. You'll discover the Bible is a work of literary genius that can transform how you live and how you think about everything. Did you catch that? The Bible wants to transform us. The Word of God does transform us. And the Bible is a collection of writings that is organized to communicate that message which is fully manifested in Jesus, to communicate it to us so that we are transformed from the inside out. So, I, I would like, I'm going to show a little clip of an interview that I had with my professor Ernesto Duke. He was my Old Testament prof. And just flesh this out a little bit further of reading the Bible as story. And then we'll come back and we'll look at another aspect of how to read the Bible as story.
1: If the purpose of scripture is to introduce you to a Messiah, who has given his life for you, who has uh, defeated the powers of evil and who offers you an invitation to be a part of his kingdom, then any person who is literate in the language that they're reading the story of scripture in can get that, right? It's very, and he probably said it more eloquently than that. And maybe I said something heretical just now. So I wasn't trying to, but you can get that. But can you really understand, you know, one of my favorite books of the Old Testament is Judges. And it's because, um, of this idea that judges is davidic propaganda literature like it's written in order for its readers to recognize that a descendant of benjamin or someone from the tribe of benjamin who is tall and howdy i don't ever use that word in real english but hey you know saul is not a good leader and that actually the benjaminites have some corruption going on and that Yahweh has chosen the house of Judah to lead his people to restore peace and Shalom amongst his, um, amongst his nation. Right. And that the Mm. whole purpose of judges is doing that. It's not like this weird story with Samson or like, you know, killing somebody with a goat bone or something like that. Like those are all stories that are really leading to this bigger thing of like being, yeah. Davidic propaganda literature. Like it's, it's trying to move the audience in a way to speak david supportive and not saul supportive um Mm. and are you going to get that the first second third fourth 75th time that you read scripture all on your own no way like there's no way you're going to get there but is that necessary to like be a part of the kingdom absolutely not right Mm. but is it necessary to understand what's happening in judges and why the book of judges is written Mm. and how it fits in the bigger story and how it um, how it teaches us about different ways uh, that the Bible communicates truth. Like, I think it's all necessary for that, right? Mm-hmm. Is it yeah. necessary to, like, in order for someone to be saved? Well, I mean, this is a controversial statement, but, like, you have to define what that means, right? Like, because the Bible, it doesn't seem like Scripture is super concerned about, like, getting people to have, like, basic instructions before leaving earth, like, that idea it mm. seems like scripture is super concerned with people giving their allegiance to jesus and becoming part of the kingdom and and not as heavily concerned on that other thing so
0: yeah
1: but even just yeah. see like that whole thing we we're talking about with judges i think it's you'd have to be a genius to see that the first time you read judges but you read it four or five times and you have people who dedicated their life to reading and understanding this book kind of give you some keys and hints and well, do you see what's happening here and where's Saul from and what happens in the last chapters and where's the tribe that's really messing things up and what's going on with that Levite and her concubine and she wants to stay in a pagan city, but he wants to stay in Gibeah. And people just start asking these questions yeah. and you realize like, yeah. oh yeah, there's a lot more going on here that I, yeah. that I never got, you know, and, and that kind of goes back to like that, what you were saying at the very beginning where you knew a lot of Bible stories, but you didn't necessarily understand the story of the Bible, and how it all fits together. So, like, yeah, in this discussion of like how to read scripture, or how do we approach the old testament? Like, I think that if nothing else, just start with the with the conviction, then I'm gonna read the whole thing, whatever it is, whatever you're reading, read the whole thing. I do these Bible assessments where I'm like assessing biblical literacy for potential missionaries. And 95% of the time when we talk about the book of Judges, when I ask them, what is Judges 17 through 21 about? You know, judges the story of samson ends in chapter 16 so what's 17 through 21 about nothing like they've never read it right mm-hmm. they've only experienced judges through the individual stories of the judges and the little arcs the story arcs of the judges mm-hmm. but never realized like oh this thing has an epilogue and it's you know it's um it's through narrative tying like the whole message of the judges together or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that and I, I truly do think it's because their, their experience with judges is like a Bible study where they read the story of Deborah and Barak or of Ehud or of Samson. Mm-hmm. And they've never sat and like just went Judges 1 through 21. And let me like really digest the whole thing.
0: Have you been blessed by the work of Unfeigned Christianity? If so, I invite you to go deeper by becoming a member of Unfeigned Christianity on Patreon. All of our work is designed to help Christians find culturally aware, biblically nuanced, and Jesus-embodying responses to current-day issues. And we could not do it without the support of our members. As a part of the membership, you get to go deeper into sorting through what does it look like to faithfully embody Jesus in a world and in our culture and time. There are three main tiers of membership. If you become an advanced member, which is the middle tier, I will send you a free copy of Lori and Matt Krieg's book, An Impossible Marriage. This is the best marriage book I've read. If you become an advanced member this month, I'll send you a free copy. Now here's the really good deal. When you do an annual membership, you get 16% off. If you'd like to see more details, just visit asherwhitmer.com forward slash member. So a second aspect of reading the Bible a story and how to read the Bible a story is that the New Testament tells the climax of the story. So we've already mentioned how the Bible is a story. It communicates a message that is fully manifested in Jesus. But what do we mean by the New Testament tells the climax of the story. Well, if you think of Pilgrim's Progress, if you think of the, the climax of that story, what is it? The, the climax is really Christian getting to the celestial city and crossing the river and entering into the gates and meeting his maker there. And then we have the whole story of his wife and kids taking their journey and coming to meet him there as well. And so just like every good story you have you have the main story, the main narrative and then you have the climax of that narrative which is the main narrative is is a main character that has something he wants he's pursuing but he faces all kinds of conflict in his pursuit and the climax is when he finally has that realization he finally gets that thing he's he's been pursuing this whole time and then there's also resolution after the climax and so in the similar way the bible is organized there's a main story the new testament tells the climax of the story it also shows the resolution but i would i would i would center the climax around Jesus. Jesus is the climax. And then again, like we said before, the the New Testament letters are more the resolution. Well, here's what it looks like to live like Jesus. So specifically, I think it's important for us to understand there's a few approaches to biblical interpretation. You may have heard like systematic theology. You may have heard like a Jesus-centric view of the Bible, which is somewhat confusing sometimes because I think everybody agrees that the Bible tells the story of Jesus. But there's this view where it's like we focus on Jesus and whatever Jesus does, we do that. Whatever Jesus says, we try to emulate that in our life today. I I would suggest that's actually not even how Jesus intended himself to be interacted with. And I'm partial to what is known as biblical theology, and that is First, finding our place in the story of God. So, the biblical theology or biblical approach to reading Scripture is is understanding its story, and then working with specifically like what is in the text. We're not going to bring our questions to the text just yet. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna ground ourselves in what is communicated there. So, we're not gonna bring in questions that the Bible is not trying to answer. Instead, we're gonna work with what the Bible is seeking to answer. And then what sort of information and wisdom does that give us for knowing how to navigate things that we are bumping into that the Bible doesn't specifically address? That's kind of a biblical theology approach. And here's, here's why I personally embrace and hold to that approach even more strongly than like a Jesus-centric hermeneutic. Because Jesus himself saw himself as embedded within the story of the Hebrew scriptures. He was a continuation and fulfillment of the Hebrew story. So I think it's problematic to start with Jesus when Jesus started in Genesis. So all of Jesus' teachings are grounded in creation, in Torah, and, and what we see throughout the, old, the Hebrew canon. So it's important for us to, to know that part of the story as well, but... I absolutely agree, and I think we all agree that the culmination of that, the fulfillment of that story of the message, is Jesus Christ. To expand on that a little bit further, I'm going to share just a few, a couple minutes of one of the lessons from the course, Finding My Place in God's Story, that specifically dr- talks about the New Testament being the climax of the story. We spent about 20 minutes in a a lesson kind of sorting through some questions about the New Testament and about how it fits into the overarching theme of the story. But we're just going to take a couple minutes here and flesh that out a little bit further. In order to understand even Jesus himself, it's important that we see that he pictures himself as a part of this overarching message, this overarching narrative. And so let's just dive in here and, and look how that is the bible is a unified literature that climaxes in the new testament and specifically climaxes with jesus so he is the fulfillment he is everything that the story has been communicating is pointing to jesus but jesus views everything leading up to him as important and necessary for his disciples to be able to understand him some of the ways that we see this is that uh, in the titles that he used of himself, I think of the title that Jesus used most often of himself and let others use of himself is the title of the Son of Man. And if you're like me growing up, you read the Son of Man, Like, why, why does he say Son of Man? Isn't he the Son of God? And part of my confusion came from the fact that I had no clue How the Son of Man fit with this overarching story. In Daniel 7, there is a vision that Daniel sees, Daniel 7, 13 through 14, where the Son of Man, or um, I'll just read it for you here. I saw in the night vision, and behold, the clouds of heaven, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is this is a very distinct reference to the Messiah to come. And when Jesus claims the title the Son of Man, he's expecting that his hearers know this prophecy from Daniel, this vision. And so he is saying that he is this divine being who comes down and reigns on an earthly throne. He is a son of man. He is one like a son of man. He sees himself. So he's a, not only is he appealing to Daniel for the title, but he sees himself as fulfilling that and then continuing the story where he's setting up a kingdom of all peoples and all languages, and who serve him, and his kingdom is everlasting. Kind of the culmination of this is the new covenant that Jesus establishes in Luke 22, 14 through 23, where he institutes the Lord's Supper, and he says, this is the new covenant, my new covenant in blood, which is a direct harking back to Jeremiah 31, where God says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So Jesus himself, when he comes, he sees himself as the culmination of everything that has been said before. And not only that, he sees himself as embedded within the story. He's now inaugurating something new, pushing something forward in this new covenant with God's people. So the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament... And the New Testament, which were written in Greek or Aramaic, a lot of a lot of the language and conversation would have been in Aramaic, but the New Testament was written in Greek. Even though they're years apart, different authors, different settings in many ways, they tell a unified story. They have unity in their origin and how they came to be. Both the editorial Uh, approach as well as the collecting and whether or not their authors knew God, knew Jesus, and they are unified with the overarching story that they tell. So don't see them as two separate things, kind of juxtaposed to each other. Sometimes we think that the God of the Old Testament is significantly different than the God of the New Testament. This is all working together to communicate something about God, about us, about creation, And so if something looks drastically different in one particular place, it's probably serving a point to help us see a more holistic picture of something. And so that is a key aspect to reading the Bible as story, understanding how the two covenants or the two main sections of the biblical text fit together. The third aspect, now I'm just going to be frank with you, When w- the first module of Finding My Place in God's Story is all about how do we approach the Bible? How do we see this? And there are eight specific lessons that dive into this. I'm giving you three of them. The Bible is story. The New Testament tells the climax, and then the third one is the Bible as wisdom literature. There are eight more that we go into in the course, but these are probably, I, I kind of looked at the eight and were like, what, what, could, what could I yank out and yet feel like they go together, but also kind of what is the gist or like the most important pieces that could help you help revolution, revolutionize your understanding of scripture and your engagement with scripture. And so the third one is the Bible as wisdom literature. So many of us, this comes back again to the whole reference book mentality. Many of us have this question of like, okay, so are women supposed to wear head coverings or not? Or don't they have to wear head coverings? Well, actually, like the the Bible, and if you you dive into 1 Corinthians, it's not even actually entirely framed that way. As though, like, you are not going to go to heaven if you don't wear a head covering. There's very very little of the Bible that is framed to that degree. When something is, it's pretty clear, right? Like there's no multiple ways of looking at or understanding whether Jesus is the way, the truth and the life to the Father. Is is that the way to experience the Father, to experience his life? Is Jesus just one of many? The Bible's incredibly plain and clear on that over and over and over again, right? But there's many other things that we kind of zero in on and try to what's right or what's wrong. And actually, if that's the question we're asking, what's right or what's wrong about this specific thing, we are going to mishandle scripture. And we're going to misunderstand what God is doing through the story. Rather, the Bible is wisdom literature. All of the diverse literary styles, so we've got poetry, we've got historical narrative, we've got prophecy, we've got New Testament letters and exposition, we've got um, New Testament narrative and telling history, which is somewhat different than, than the Old Testament. We've got apocalyptic literature, we've got similes, we've got metaphors, we've got imagery that, that are comparing and contrasting things. All of these different literary styles reveal God's wisdom, and invite us into a journey of character transformation. So there is a very real sense of when it comes to practical application and living out, the Bible actually doesn't give us specifics. And that seems to be on purpose. Because so many of us, we would, oh, if it said to do this, we'd just do that. If it said not to do that, we'd just not do that, right? And there are areas of the Bible that that are kind of that way, kind of fairly plain. But even in those areas, it's less to do, and and you, you catch up on this, when you read the Old Testament, it has less to do with the specific things you're doing or not doing, because there are people who do them sometimes, right? They do it well, but they still miss Jesus. Or if you jump to the New Testament, you think of the the two sons, the prodigal father, and he has this rebellious wayward son. He also has this son that looks really obedient. Good. Well, they're actually both sinners and they're in need of the father's presence. That's the whole point. And so when we engage scriptures like, what do I do? Oh, it says to do this or it says not to do this. We end up not engaging the author of scripture. And the whole point of the incarnated word of God through text is to lead us into the inner word of God, Jesus, Yahweh, the Father, and to cause us to wrestle and engage with him with our questions, with our burdens, with our desires, with our wanderings, in our applications. The Bible doesn't just answer our questions for us. It provides wisdom for us. Part of the goal is to be filled with the wisdom of God so that we can then be transformed into the people God wants us to be. If all we have is answers to specific questions, we're gonna bump into new questions we don't have answers for. But when we get the wisdom of God, then we're gonna be able to navigate all kinds of different questions and problems, leaning on not our own understanding, but on the wisdom of God. What, what we're seeing is that the message of the Bible, the, the, the whole story and the particular stories within this whole story, give wisdom for life. As the Bible Project has put it, all of the diverse literary styles in the Bible reveal God's wisdom and invite us into a journey of character transformation. So, yes, there's a genre, there's a literary style of wisdom literature but even more than that, all the diverse styles, so, so the historical narrative, the wisdom literature, the, the poetry, the, the apocalyptics, the prophecy, the ex- expositional kind of teachings, the New Testament letters, all of this reveals the wisdom, God's wisdom and invites us into a journey of character transformation. This is particularly in contrast to the Bible being a theology dictionary, or a Christian reference book, a moral handbook. So instead of reading the Bible because I want to learn facts, read the Bible to glean wisdom for life. Instead of reading the Bible to look up what I must do in a particular moral situation, read the Bible for wisdom for life, because there's going to be a lot of situations in life that the Bible doesn't specifically address. And so can I glean the wisdom Yes, the Bible has theological facts. Yes, the Bible has moral guidance, moral compass. But more than that, the whole story that it's revealing is wanting to do a character transformation in you and I that gives us wisdom as we traverse through the world where there's a lot of things that happen that that we don't know how to respond. We don't know what to do. And just, just to kind of bring this out a little bit more. Well, something that can be really helpful, literally, is is just to y- use a, a Bible software, do a Bible search, a word search for the word wisdom. And just take note of how it's used throughout, throughout the scriptures. We learn that Jesus in Luke 2 grew. The boy became strong and he was filled with wisdom. And God's grace was upon him uh a few verses later it says jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with god and people and so even jesus needed wisdom needed the wisdom of god poured out on his life um in in luke in Luke 11:49, uh, we read that Jesus is, this is kind of where he's going through woe. Verse 47, woe to you, you build monuments to the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Therefore, you are witnesses that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their monuments. Because of this, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute so that this generation may be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world. So I'm reading from Luke 11, uh, 47 through 50, roughly. So notice, Jesus quotes a prophecy, what we would have traditionally called a prophecy, but he says, because of this, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets. So there's something about this sending them prophets, they will be killed and persecuted that's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is doing this, is revealing this. Just another example is that in Acts, when people came and the Gentile widows were not being fed, the apostles said we need to select for ourselves men, or not not the apostles, he says select for yourselves, men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. So as as we seek to be leaders in God's household, and we saw this in, in Moses um, way back in the Old Testament. Moses was given the wisdom of God; was filled with wisdom, a spirit of wisdom. And we see uh, in even in Exodus the craftsmen whom I have. So you are to instruct all the skilled craftsmen whom I have filled with a spirit of wisdom to make Aaron's garments. And so there is a need as we serve God, as we lead in God's kingdom, there's a need for wisdom. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So, so we are to mind the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. Ephesians chapter 3 points out that the church is to reveal to the, cosmos, to the cosmos God's multifaceted wisdom, Ephesians 3.10. It go up in chapter 1, Ephesians uh, 1, verse 8. God lavished his grace with all wisdom and understanding. Uh, verse seventeen of chapter one. I pray that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom. So we we need all the treasure Colossians two three all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Him Jesus Christ. We need wisdom. We we need to be transformed by the wisdom of God. And so that's what that's what the book the Bible is the collection of writings the diverse literary styles reveal God's wisdom and invite us into character transformation that help us know how to navigate in the world. Now, what's interesting is if you study the word wisdom, you'll notice that it's used interchangeably sometimes with the word knowledge. So if you think of the story of Solomon, and I'm assuming most of us are familiar with it, but if if we're not, go look in the book of 1 Kings and look at the story of Solomon. God comes to him and says, I will give you anything That you ask. So, what what would you like to be given? And Solomon asks for wisdom. And God is pleased by that and blessed, and he pours out wisdom on Solomon. There's a story from the very beginning of the biblical narrative where someone sought wisdom. Adam and Eve took for themselves the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And as you, as you read through the biblical narrative, as you, if you do a word search on, on wisdom, you'll notice that sometimes the pursuit of wisdom is folly. It leads to uh, the pursuit of knowledge leads to corruption sometimes. And there, there is this dichotomy being given, I don't, maybe dichotomy is not a very good word, but when we see something able to make us wise and we go and take it, then that leads to corruption. That That is a beastly nature for us to take on ourselves to have our own wisdom. But when God has offered wisdom or come to us, what, what would you like? And we we ask God for wisdom, there's, there's blessing with that. That's the kind of wisdom that God wants us to pursue is wisdom that is in accordance with his design. So, and, and that's consistent with, the whole issue in Genesis 3 is trust. Like, can we trust God's wisdom? Can we trust God to call something good and evil and accept that for ourselves? Or are we going to try to define that for ourselves? That's the, the cosmic struggle is, do we work within God's wisdom? Or are we trying to have wisdom for ourselves and be able to define things on our own? understanding that the biblical narrative reveals the wisdom of God invites us into character transformation is to acknowledge that God is the source of all wisdom. God is the source of all truth. And I want his wisdom. I don't want to just pump my head, my brain full of knowledge so that I can arbitrarily start executing wisdom, but I want to walk in love and in humility, seeking and gleaning the wisdom of god hey friends this podcast is brought to you in partnership with the dwell app i don't know how many of you are familiar with the dwell audio bible app but this app is phenomenal it it's changed my life in several different ways as a bible college student i do tremendous amounts of bible reading throughout the semester more than i normally do And I'm not a fast reader and so one of the ways that I have been able to keep on top of the Bible reading is through the dwell app. One of the things I really like about it is there's very meditative reflective music played in the background of the reader so it's not dramatized. Some some audio Bible apps are dramatized and that's a little I don't know not my cup of tea But it's a very calming and just peaceful way of having the Bible read to you. There's also, there's at least 15, I think there's close to 30 by now, different voices that you can choose from. There's many different translations you can choose from. For the ESV, I think there's maybe two or three voices, if that makes sense. But there's over 15 voices for sure. And so you can have a female voice, you can have a male voice, you can have a British accent, you can have an American accent, you can have a Canadian accent, or a well, I like the British accent, so I listen to the Bible in the British accent, and it's it's been a really good way to keep on top of my homework. But also, I have found, sometimes I'll be listening to audio Bible as I commute someplace, or as I'm doing some other work, or even in the morning. Sometimes it's hard to wake up, you're tired, and to sit down and read, it literally feels like an intellectual exercise. You're just, it's like school, like starting your day with school. And I love learning things, but I'm not like, I don't do well at starting my day with school. And so when you wake up and you're tired, but you want you want to meditate on the word of God to just put in my Air, AirPods and listen to the dwell app is an incredible way to start my morning, just in peaceful worship, meditation. I hear things differently when I hear it being read than when I read it. I personally think you should read and hear it both, but that's one thing I like about Bible is different things stick out that didn't stand out before. I'll listen to it as I'm going on a run or something, and I can't say enough good about the Dwell app. And so if you would like to take your meditation your Bible reading to another level you can also if you're not able to sleep at night you can put in your AirPods and and listen to the scripture being read and fall asleep that way I've used that at times as well but you can start for free there's a link in the description below or you can go ahead and purchase the the annual plan which I have and it's to me it's very much worth it just in the way a couple things the way it helps me uh, meditate and kind of a fresh view a fresh experience with scripture and then also the way it helps me keep on top of my homework it's been very helpful for me well this episode is is quite a bit longer than i thought it would be but i'd I'd like to give us an overview before we wrap it up and end here i would like us to just look at what is the story because that's a question i often get in the finding my place in god's story course it's actually there's five modules but i don't walk through the story until module four and part of the reason is the reason i have it shaped that way is because there's a lot of things that we kind of need to think through and learn about studying the bible in order to see the story because some of us approach the bible as a reference book boom 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 like oh it says this that means this and and we're not understanding like one aspect that we we go into a little bit is the fact that the bible wasn't written in english and it was written by many different authors right so how does that affect the way we read it and understand it we got to work through those so that we can as we're going through the story understand like what is intended to be communicated here and also got to understand we got to learn how to observe, observe 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 so many people how many times have you sat down in a Bible study and there's like eight of you there and you sit down, you read the passage and then the next question is, what does this mean? Wait, 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 wait. Like you're not ready to discuss what does it mean yet. You should spend a, most of your time and energy observing what it says. Observe, observe, observe. And then the the meaning portion actually is significantly simple there there is still a certain level of work especially depending on on the difference of background you know if, if I'm diving into something in the Old Testament there's going to be a, a much more drastic cultural difference between me and the Old Testament even though there's still a drastic cultural difference between me and the New Testament but there are pieces language that is used that I might want to study and observe that that's a part of observation so that then I can say oh this is this is what the author was saying. And here's how it probably would have landed on his audience. And then we have this section called application. What does it mean for us in our particular context? So we, we, we walk through that before we get into the story. What is the story? But a lot of a question that I'll often get is, so you, you talk about the Bible as story. What is the story? I'd like to wrap up our time here. It's going to take a few minutes here, but to walk through the story of the Bible so that we can see God's story and kind of place our moment in time in that storyline. So Genesis 1 through 2, I get this from N.T. Wright. Let me say this real quick. The Bible, if you you summarize the story of scripture, you can place it into five main movements. If you think of a play, you have act one, Act two, act three of a play. You, you can, If you think about the message of scripture as a play, there are five main acts. It's creation, the fall, Israel, Jesus, and the church, the era of the church. So we're gonna walk through this. Genesis one and two is the first part of that story and it's creation. At creation, in these first two chapters, this sets the stage. If you've ever read a book, uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry. If you've ever read a book, how many of you have read a book? If you've ever read like a tome or a a, a massive novel that's telling a story, you will know. You'll notice some some modern stories aren't quite the same way. So it's it's a little bit different. That's why I'm particularly talking about large works where there's you're going to dive into massive subplots. And and you're going to have chapter after chapter that, that are building characters that work or maybe show up on the scene later on down the road. And then we get back after all these chapters of character building, we get back to the main plot. In those types of books, you have what might be termed as the prologue or kind of the the foreshadowing of the whole thing of what's going to come. There's, there's this, it sets the stage. So here's where everything starts. And that's what Genesis 1 and 2 serves as. It is the prologue of sorts. It is the stage has been set moment. And in creation, there's a lot of questions that, that we can wrestle through and ask and talk about origins of earth, origins of humanity and all of this. And we can get into debates over that. But let's step back and be like, what is really simply observed in Genesis 1 and 2? Who gives life and purpose? Like, that's very simple, right? When you look at the days of creation, you have God speaking things into existence. And then he comes back and he places them in their role of purpose and function. And so we see that God gives life and purpose. What is good? That is, throughout Genesis 1, that concept of it is good is repeated over and over and over again. Why? Why is that repeated? Well, these different things that are being created are good. Not only that, when he comes back and gives function and design and purpose, that is good. So this creation, the the particular players of creation, are good. And what they're appointed to do is good. Well, if we're looking at what is good, there's no place in Genesis 1 that says God is good, but that is strongly insinuated as he is the one creating. He is the one giving purpose. And so who is good? God is good. He made a good creation, good design. He gives life and purpose. Another question, what is man commissioned to do? Genesis one26 through 27 we see that man is made in the image of God and then he's told to go out be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. Now some of us we point to that as reason for hunting. <laughs> Man's supposed to have dominion over the earth. Dominion is not conquest. It's not war. It's not language of war. Dominion is language of kingdom and taken care of. You don't go out and conquest your kingdom. You rule over and care for your kingdom. And so man is to rule and reign, we might say, according to the image of God. That is, that is a clear peace communicated in creation. Now, here's the thing. As we progress throughout the biblical story, and as we're looking, reading through the Old Testament, reading into the New Testament, there are things, actually pretty frequently, where the biblical author, whether it's a, a prophet, whether it's Moses, whether it's Paul in the New Testament, or Peter, John, where they or Luke, where they point back to creation. And there are particular things about creation that they frequently bring out. And if you pause and reflect and think about, okay, so what was... The last time you had a conversation with somebody about Genesis, what were you talking about? And then ask yourself the question, do the biblical authors talk about what we were talking about? Because some of us come from a space or a background where all we got from Genesis 1 and 2 is that God created the earth in six days. And so then we have this, this thing about the earth is 6,000 years old, right? Right or 8,000, maybe at most 10,000 years old. And that's what the, the bulk of our conversation about Genesis is about. And that may be, I'm not here to argue for old earth or young earth creation. I'm saying when we get into those debates, and that's our only engagement with Genesis, we're missing the stage that's being set. Because the biblical authors never come back and repeat and be like, oh, see, this is, 8000 years old but they frequently come back and repeat certain aspects of God's design. Jesus comes back and repeats like the union between man and woman that is communicated in Genesis. There are things that are frequently hearkened back on from Genesis 1 and 2. And so if you're from a from from just a simply observing what's going on here, how what is the story that's being communicated? Well, one of the way what should I grasp from all of this? Because Genesis is full. Like there's there's a lot of things being revealed. Like, wow, God spoke these things into existence and it was so. Right? And he orders the fish and the birds. That's amazing. But what should I really grasp from this? First of all, stick with what's written, because some of our conversations about Genesis actually talk about things that aren't even mentioned or written in Genesis. But then also, what do the biblical authors hearken back to as we progress throughout the story. You're not going to necessarily know that right away. It's going to take time as you read through and you begin to observe. But now, now that you hear this in your Bible reading, pay attention. It might be helpful just to go pause and go read Genesis 1 and 2, and then pick back up in your Bible reading, wherever you're at. Maybe you're in Amos or Habakkuk, or maybe you're in Joel, Jude, or Titus, You know, just start noticing, observing what is creational language being used here or what imagery actually harkens back to those first two chapters. Because it happens frequently, but it doesn't necessarily happen, at least not that frequently, about some of of the questions and talking points that we have tended to often center our conversations of Genesis around. And I think that's sad because we I'm not saying those conversations aren't important or aren't a part of, of learning about God and about creation, but it, it kind of reveals our reference book mentality as opposed to just grasping like this message, this story, this good and beautiful story that God has created. And I do think, this is totally a caveat, I'm going off script here, some of us really wrestle with the goodness of God, and the goodness of God is grounded in Genesis 1 and 2. And most of us, when we bump into conflicts and tragedies and issues, and we say, wait, why does this happen? Our answers start at Genesis 3. And that's sad. And going back to my original comment about how the story of God has been the greatest comfort and hope in times of grief and darkness for me. It's not... It's not the fall, that, that's a key part of making sense. But for me, the most comforting part is remembering the beginning, the creation. When I have a question about life or about something, I go back to Genesis 1 and I start all over, immersing myself in the story. So the next part, the next act of this story is the fall, Genesis 3 through 11. So it's not just Genesis 3, Genesis 3 through 11, because we see there's this good creation, good design, man's commission to image God throughout creation. Well, what happens in Genesis 3? There's this fall, and we then see a cycle of chaos begin that continues through Genesis 11. So in this section, Genesis 3 through 11, very simply, again, there's a lot of stuff like what in the world is happening in in Genesis 6, where you have these these men of God who look on daughters of man and there's some sort of interaction that happens and and like this mysterious thing. There's a variety of elements throughout these chapters that are like that. And it's just the beginning because there's gonna be all kinds of stuff like that as we progress throughout the biblical story. Those are things we can dive into deeper. They're like deeper layers of the onion that we unpack. But very simply, what can we observe? at a high level view from these chapters, we discover that there is an antagonist to God, right? So God is the protagonist. You may not have caught that. God is the protagonist of the biblical story. He's the main character. And and it's not just God. He's working through man And that's something that is interesting. It's fascinating to me to discover within the biblical story. God works. God doesn't need man. He doesn't need anybody. He's not reliant on anything. But for whatever reason, he does. To create a text for people to read his word, his instructions for men and women to know. If you think of the people of Israel, those people never heard God speak directly. But Moses spoke face to face with God. Prophets would hear God directly and then speak to his people. God uses man. Why doesn't God just show up and declare to the Canaanites that he is God? Why is Israel supposed to be an image God and, and shine his light among the nations? Why, why is Israel called to do that? I don't really know. God is the protagonist, but he's very closely working in and through mankind to image him. And we discover in Genesis 3 through 11 that there's an antagonist to all of this. We discover deception. We discover that man sees something that seems good in their eyes. It looks wise, but it actually brings death and separation. And that's a theme. I, I mentioned it already in relation to judges. That theme, man looking and seeing what is wise in their eyes, That shows up frequently throughout the biblical story, and it always brings a negative result. And so there's this cosmic struggle that ensues. Will I trust God's design that what he calls good is actually good, and what he calls evil is truly evil? Or am I going to try to decide for myself what is good and evil? Instead of imaging God, man images themselves. They're going to be like God themselves. They're going to do what is right in their own eyes. What's interesting is it usually ends up looking like the beast, like the serpent. So they're not actually imaging themselves. They end up typically imaging the beast. Some examples of this are Cain, Lamech, the people in Noah's day, where you have Cain who's an elder son who could model what it looks like to follow Yahweh, but instead he kills his brother. Lamech is a man of poetry. He could write songs and music that reflect the goodness of God. Instead, he writes a poem about men he has killed and the people in Noah's day, very depraved, very wicked people. The third act of this story is Israel, the story of Israel. It's a subplot that is communicating something, teaching us something about the main plot that is fully manifested in Jesus. Israel, their story begins in Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham, and it continues through Malachi 4, if, if we're reading as we most of us have in our English, our ESBN, SB, KJV Bibles. Yahweh covenants with the family to bring about blessing by setting them among the nations. Now, some of us wonder why Israel? why not the Canaanites? There's not an answer for the question of why God covenanted with that family. But through the story of Israel, we see that God cares just as much about the Canaanites as he does about the Israelites. The problem is the Israelites did not reflect the image of God. They did not reflect, they did not live out their commission trusting God's way is good and not leaning on their own understanding and as a result that not only hurts them but it also hurts the nations that they are placed among. We see God's instruction through the story of Israel. We see instruction for life both wise and good design. It's just good hygiene, good way of taking care care of yourself, good eating, good diet but also instruction for righteous and just behavior. We get that through the story of Israel. So what does it look like to image God? Well, read the Torah. Read the instructions given to Israel. We see this continued cosmic struggle, however, of mankind doing what is right in their own eyes and not trusting that God's good actually is good and what he calls evil actually is evil. We see God's faithfulness and his heart for all peoples through the story of Israel. And we see man's need for a Messiah. I don't know about you, but if if we would just go Genesis 1, 2, and 3, maybe even through 11, and then get to Jesus, it would sort of be like, oh, cool, this is a cool story, right? But when you sit in the story of Israel, and generation after generation, and God's faithfulness, and they continue to just walk away from him, and then you get to this place of, of this utter need where in, in Isaiah, where the people are saying, we have sinned, woe to us, burst through the heavens and come down. That's where God wants to bring mankind to that place. You cannot do it. I have told you how to live according to my design, but you cannot do it because you are set in your way of deciding for yourselves what is good and evil. You're not trusting me and you need my divine help to be restored back into relationship with me and the world to function rightly again. And so by the time we get to the end of Malachi, we are desperate for a Messiah. And what's really interesting is every book of prophecy that ends with judgment for Judah and Israel ends with the continued hope of a remnant that a Messiah is coming and we get that reinforced throughout the writings. We talked about the three sections of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, the prophecy, the prophets, and then the writings. The writings communicate the Messiah is coming, and we're ready for the Messiah. Jesus is the fourth act of this magnificent story. And this is the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We see God in person. What does God look like? Look at Jesus. That is God. He showed up on the scene. He's burst through the heavens, come down, and he is here in flesh and blood eating with us sinners. That's radical in a cultural context where to eat with someone was to communicate equality like I am one with you. We have a holy and perfect God bursting through the heavens, coming down and communicating that he's one with us, a broken people. But that's the only way we can be redeemed is to become one with Yahweh. And that's the thrust of the New Testament. As we'll discover, the whole goal of Jesus on earth is to show us what what God looks like, what it looks like to image God, to set us free from our sin and inaugurate a new covenant with humanity. And so any one of us, not just Israel, any one of us can enter that new covenant through faith in jesus christ and through the circumcision of our hearts where we allow our whole being to be penetrated by the spirit and person of god so that we can be transformed into people surrendered to him and living out his design and then the last the fifth act is nt wright calls it the church i call it Creational restoration, and this is Acts through Revelation. God continues his story through us, through the church, not just the New Testament church. But the church here today, the church in America in 2023, the church in India in 2023, the church in Russia in 2023, the church in Ukraine in 2023, the church in Zambia in 2023, the church in New Zealand in 2023, the church in Chile in 2023, God continues his story through you and I. Today, he restores creation through a covenantal kingdom. That is the church. The kingdom of God is at hand within the hearts of people whose eyes have been fixed on him through repentance. They have turned away from doing what is right in their own eyes to fully fixing on God through Jesus Christ and trusting that his design is best. And what he says is good is good. What he says is evil is evil. That's the kingdom of God, and this kingdom functions not through coercion like the kingdoms of this earth. The kingdom functions through covenant, covenanting together. We who are sinful now become righteous and reflect God's image as we intended, as we were intended to all along. That's us. That's where we live. That's our part of the story right now, but this creational restoration, we also catch a glimpse that Jesus is victorious. So we're living out in chaotic times, in difficult circumstances, in tumultuous national settings. We cling to the fact that Jesus is victorious. God's will is accomplished and being accomplished throughout the earth. We get to participate in that. And the very end of this story ends in a garden city, dwelling in God's presence again, and the tree of life is there. And we who have been faithful will be united and get to experience the sweet fellowship face to face with Yahweh again. So it starts in a garden, it ends in a garden city. It starts a couple in a garden, it ends a city of people. In the garden. It's a beautiful story. So that's kind of the overarching theme. And it'll help you kind of reframe how you read through this again. But we might have some lingering questions as we progress through this, as you've listened to this episode. So what do we do with ethical struggles that we face? How do we know what is right and wrong? Are you saying we don't, oh, the is just this thing, there's just a story that we we read through and it's fascinating and it's exciting, it's beautiful. I've got I've got issues I'm dealing with right now. What do I do with that? Are you saying it's wrong for me to go to scripture to find guidance for that? What do we do with various beliefs about God and doctrines and so forth? Is it not true that like you you're saying that we should not go to scripture to, to better understand what is the nature of hell, right? What about all these debates that the church has dealt with for years? Like, how do you know what exists within the canon? Or how do you know the nature of the Spirit's work among believers? Like, are we not to dive into Scripture to to understand that and discover that? Or what about times where we don't feel very inspired? In fact, something I hear a lot of from folks is, Asher, that sounds great. But it also sounds overwhelming. Like how, now I, now I can't just sit down and read Matthew again, right? Like I gotta know how does it fit in with the overarching story? I want to be connected with God. I sit down with scripture and it I just, it's like talking to a brick wall. It's like nothing's there. And there's this struggle and this desire. We want inspiration. We want connection with Yahweh. What do we do with these things? That's exactly what we're gonna get into in the next episode. So I'm not gonna go on, I've taken enough of your time now. We're gonna dive into those questions because those are very good and legitimate questions. We'll get into that in the next episode. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for coming on this with me, this series and diving into. I would love to hear what questions do you have or how does this impact you? Have, Have you ever seen the Bible as story before and hearing some of these approaches like how I should reframe how I read the text what impact does that have on you do you have questions specifically related to that do you have an observation that you've noticed? Has, has it helped you or blessed you in any way? I would love to hear your feedback. You can send it to at podcast.asherwittner.com or if you're watching this on YouTube or on the blog, you can drop it in the comment section below. If you got this as an email, you can reply to the email. Either way, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for taking this journey with me. Unfeigned Christianity is brought to you by our members at Patreon. As a part of the membership program, you receive two deep dive essays a month and expanded versions of all our podcast interviews. If you would like to become a member, visit www.asherwhitmer.com forward slash member. Unfeigned Christianity podcast is also a part of two networks, the Restorative Faith Collective, where we have conversations about race, perspectives, and relationships in an Anabaptist context. To learn about more articles and podcasts, visit www.RestorativeFaithCollective.org. The second network is the Kingdom Outpost, where we talk about what it looks like to live as Jesus's nation in today's world. For more podcasts and articles, visit KingdomOutpost.org. Thanks for listening.